but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is our WTA year-end wrap. And it's entitled Holy Spirit Activate. Holy Spirit Activate. Holy Spirit Activate. Oh my god. And you know where that where where did you get that inspiration? You were working with the agenda yeah. and somehow you decided to explain and it cultivates fall run. With well, Holy Spirit Activate you used, in parentheses. You used the phrase cultivate cultivate activated i did yeah and i'm like oh my god that's perfect <laughs> if you haven't seen this viral clip on tiktok it uh it's on like a celebrity family feud and it's one of the phillips sisters from wilson phillips john phillips daughters oh, is that who i don't is? remember which one and then there's a the guy from pentatonics the tall one like standing in the camera line just sort of bopping along to it like looking like what the hell is happening right now <laughs> Well, we are going to maybe talk about some other specific moments throughout the year where somebody's spirit activated as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. for for better or worse. This is our penultimate episode of the season, most likely. Last one was our anti-penultimate. Thank you, mm-hmm. because a lot of people wrote in, and because I asked, what is, what's the word for before the second to last? Mm-hmm. I, people I, knew, I mean, they just... They opened up their Latin textbooks and educated me. It seems that it's far more common known, commonplace than Apparently. than we. You know, we knew. we did not take the classics. In I was my, of no help to my, you with uh, that. Public American high school. So, before we get into the full on recap, we have to start with a massive thank you to everybody who's donated to the GoFundMe thus far. As Queen Mariah would say. We can't even know what to say, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Um, we we reached our goal within a week, and I gotta say, I I was pleasantly surprised, shocked. Mm. Even I didn't really know what to set the goal at. We set it at the same goal as last time. We spent quite a bit of time talking about this. What should we do? Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, <laughs> we just. Again, suffered from a lack of confidence, self-belief in our product, I guess. I guess. So, as we said from the beginning, we are going to keep it open for a long time. This isn't out of an excess of greed. This was always the plan. Uh, The goal was arbitrary. And uh, we are humbled and grateful that it was Mm -hmm. reached. Prize levels. Those of you who gave $150 or more, the first five were eligible for uh, a digital illustration of your favorite player by Tom Humberstone, the talented gentleman who does all of our graphics and design on the BodyServe. Some of them are yet unclaimed, so you may have an unread DM if you're one of those people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some folks just don't need that as a reward, as it turns out. So then we go down the line in in order of who donated and when. And then once those first five have been filled, then we will raffle off the last two. But everybody in that category 
that prize category will get a swag bag. The one thing we do want to make clear and, and beg of you is if you've donated $50 or more, please email us or DM us on social media with your address. So many folks this time, and it happened last time as well, write back to us and say, well, you know, we know that writing postcards can be a bore and a chore, and we don't want to have to put you through that. Disavow yourself of those ideas because it's something we actually enjoy. And it's literally the least we can do. So <laughs> don't don't feel like it's a, yeah. a burden. I can, God, I can do it during work hours. <laughs> you did sometimes, last time. Sometimes. <laughs> and we have experience at doing this now. I'm the organizer of the two of us. Mm-hmm. So I have like spreadsheets and all this stuff going the experience of having done it last time, we can get ahead of it rather than wait till the GoFundMe is closed to start filling these rewards. Yes, yes. Yeah. So please send us your addresses. All right. So enough about GoFundMe. We are here to wrap the 2021 WTA season. And for the past uh, probably five years, it's felt like the same story on the WTA, which is, what the hell? And parity. Yeah. What the hell brought along by parity? <laughs> Hatching and snatching, mm-hmm. which is your coinage. It, uh, it feels like the WTA is overdue for a correction, for some stability. No. But entropy is the rule it's, this past half decade. It's only going to get worse or better, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Last night I was looking at the the end of year rankings and some of those names that are littered at 20 or below, 20 to 100, it's wild. Like Serena is 40 something. You have all these players who are bubbling up, didn't quite explode this year, but are there or thereabouts. And then you have to factor in former Grand Slam champions, factor in the people that we don't even know about yet. The Emma Raducanu's that could be hatching and snatching mm-hmm, next year, mm-hmm. this thing is going to metastasize. That sounds very sinister. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In a good way. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, don't expect stability or any kind of like mid-2000s normalcy on the WTA uh, tour. No, no. So the story of the year, I think, is that we had a, a solid number one player who picks her spots, who schedules very meticulously, who luckily, I think, for her and the tour, won a major this year at Wimbledon. But even before winning Wimbledon, you know, her variety and her skills on multiple surfaces were setting her apart as the clear top player of the year. It also enraged the haters. And what what Ash Barty did this year was to silence those haters. They can still hate her game, but just be frank about it. You either don't like her or don't like her game. That's it. It's no longer about delegitimizing her position as the number one player in the world. Mm-hmm. Because she was, she's that. She's earned it. I've got to say that I was quite relieved that she won a second Grand Slam. That it was done at Wimbledon because Wimbledon has this built-in prestige, whether you feel it's deserved or not. And that she was able to win other big, big titles her second Miami title, the tournament in Cincinnati. She made a great case for why she's been at the top for several years now. 
But at the same time, Sabalenka is someone who was building her success from the beginning of the year. You saw Bedosa methodically put together this great season. There were a lot of like started from the middle and now we're here stories Mm. in this season. Let's take it from the top. Where were we at the start of the 2021 season? We had the Australian Open looming with a lot of uncertainty as to whether it would happen, what were the conditions under which it would happen if it did. And as it turned out, we got a a pretty full WTA season, a full year of tennis. The, The calendar looked different. There was a lot of makeshift tournaments, a lot of thinking on on your feet when it came to the WTN and tournament organizers. But for professional tennis players at the top level, at least, tennis was everywhere this year. Yeah, starting in Australia, they put together a pretty good pre-Australia tournament schedule. It was completely thrown off, of course, by the need for some players on that plane to go into this hard super quarantine because there were positive cases on their plane. They even improvised uh, another tournament the week before the Australian Open for those people in the super quarantine. That's a tournament that had co-champions. Yes. And so, okay, so I was on Wikipedia today, and they called that tournament abandoned, rather than crowning either player the champion. Interesting, huh? That was, correct me if I'm wrong, that was Anne Lee and and Contivate, right? So I don't think either of them actually got credit for a title there. That's interesting. The WTA website does not have either of them listed as a winner for that tournament. Nope. Basically, they're co-runners up. Hmm. Maybe that's something I just got wrong from the jump. Maybe. Hmm. It's confusing. It's not something that often happens. I mean, but they threw that tournament in there just as a desperate attempt to equalize conditions. Sabalenka started the year with a win in Abu Dhabi, and that was her third consecutive title spilling over from the back end of 2020. So she came in to this season on a mission, ready to level up even further, and she what finishes the year number two? Yes. So we'll talk about her season a little bit more going forward, but she was considered a huge favorite in Australia despite having pretty lackluster results at slams which she remedied this year. It's fair to say, and it's something we should give them credit for, that Tennis Australia and Australia in general did a good job with stringing together the series of events heading into the Australian Open. Yes. Now, what they probably didn't do a good job of was this two-tiered class system of top players getting to go to this special exhibition event, private planes, The quarantine was much less severe, or they were still quarantined, but it was uh, a lot more luxurious Mm. than the common players. Venus having her breakfast on the patio, (laughs) others Mm. waving from their balconies. Yes, do you remember Novak waving? And so Novak was fighting for better conditions for his uh, lesser colleagues, if you recall. And I wonder if we have to do a mea culpa here. In that first episode we did about the quarantine, when we were talking about all the players who were complaining on Instagram, Mm -hmm. were we too hard on them? Like, were we being heartless? I really want to know. Okay. Do you remember what it was like for you to be inside your head and body and spirit 
at that time, mm -hmm. having to commentate on this shit. Yeah. Like, we were also living through the height of COVID at that time as well. Yes. We were all tired. We had all had it. Mm -hmm. So to see the players complain about what was inconvenient but not dire. Correct. Was annoying. Mm -hmm. uh, if we want to have a conversation about whether these players were seriously put at a disadvantage out of necessity but mm -hmm. we can look back in in hindsight now with fair certainty that they were more behind the eight ball than other players there was a there was inequity yes definitely the, the being able to label it as fair or unfair is tricky because a lot of these conditions were necessary right mm -hmm. to your point the one bit that could have been avoided was that two-tiered system that was set up. Right. And it was so bad that Craig Tiley had to ask the players to stop posting all these practice picks with their teams on social media because it looked so inequitable, right? Naomi was on the court with her team. What does this look like to your fellow players who are locked up in their hotel rooms? That sucked. So they put a gag on those players, like stop essentially uh, showing off. But Craig Tiley stepped in it badly. He admitted that, yeah, top players get extra benefits. Everybody knows that. Like, that's, that is, the, that's, not the, part that's the quiet say. part out loud. Yeah, you don't say that part out loud. Wasn't that also the exhibition where Serena played Naomi and Serena won? Yes. And Naomi could barely find the court? <laughs> yeah. And then look what happened. Look what happened. At the Australian Open, Naomi Osaka wins her fourth Grand Slam title. And it looks at that point that this could be Naomi's year. This could be a, a, just a massive bust-out moment. It was also the second time she had done the U.S. Open Australian back-to-back. -back. Mm -hmm. Clearly, hard courts are her thing. When she's on, she's pretty unrivaled on hard courts at the moment. You could have foreseen her winning Miami. Clay and grass is still going to be a struggle, but things were looking good for a, a close battle for number one between her and Barty. And people were saying in January and February, why is Barty still number one? It's like, okay, every just slow down. It is, you know, it's a ranking system that's uh, in normal times based on a year. In this year, it was based on much longer than a year. Mm -hmm. We always talk about how tennis is a game of such small margins. What about this sliding door moment? What if Garbinia Muguruza had converted one of those two match points against Naomi Osaka at the Australian Open? How would this year look completely different? <laughs> this was their first ever meeting, by mm -hmm. the way. And Naomi's form going in was questionable. I know you can't judge much on an exhibition, but it's the first tournament of the year. It's a weird environment. Muguruza comes in hot, and man, it was so close. If she beat Naomi, what would have happened? Would she have gone out in the next round? Would she have won the title? You have here listed, does Serena get number 24? Because she went out to Naomi. That yeah, was the semifinals, yeah. right? Serena looked fit. She had these important wins over Sabalenka, who was the informed player coming in, over Simona Halep. At times, outmaneuvering Halep, which is crazy like shouldn't be happening at this stage of serena's career 
Serena enjoyed the hell out of that win. Do you remember how loquacious, how effervescent, how giving of herself she was to press after that match? She was beaming from <laughs> ear to ear, mm-hmm. beating Simona Halep on that court. In straight sets. And up against Naomi, it's just, if Naomi's hardcore game is is on, it's a, uh, I mean, Serena is at such a huge disadvantage at this age. Mm. She started that match well and had opportunities to put Naomi under the pump. And she did not capitalize on those opportunities. And then that was that. And then when you add all the intangibles about their history together, Serena's uh, limited number of chances, her age, and then the tangible of Naomi just hitting with such power, getting faster on the court and taking away so much necessary time from Serena. It's a man, it is a tough ask. But if Muguruza wins that match, we're probably looking at her as player of the year. What? I mean, you never know, right? She was the runner-up to Kennan in the previous year. You, you could easily see her getting to that stage again. Uh, she could have won. Who knows? But had she won, would she have had the same success throughout the rest of the year that she did? She was on such an upswing, winning Dubai and then getting injured, right? And she capped her year very well, but who knows? So we get to March. What happened to February? <laughs> well, the... The Australian Open ended well into February. Right, right. It was pushed back this year. Okay. And then? There were a couple add-on tournaments in Australia. This is where you're prompting me, I take it. Yeah, hello. Dasha Kazatkina returned to the winner's circle, beating Boskova at the Phillip Island Trophy. And then in Adelaide, Iga Sviantek beat Belinda Bancic. That's That's how her name is pronounced when we're talking about tennis in Australia, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. historically speaking, all right. at least. So in normal years, February is all over the globe. This year, they were well into February when the Australian Open ended, did a few more tournaments there, and then we're in the Middle East. Right, because you're in quarantine for this time, you play one match, lose potentially at the Australian Open, and then what do you have to show for mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. Sophia Kennan, do you remember, she lost early in her Australian Open defense, came back, tried to play another tournament after the Australian Open, got appendicitis. That had was this year? Yeah. I mean, her year started off crazy and just got worse. She was the 2020 Player of the Year. Yeah. And she is not even a footnote for a lot of folks talking about this this season. No, not at all. We get to March, and one of the reasons why I prompted you about that sliding door moment with Muguruza is that this is when she starts to activate, right? Like <laughs> yes, if she was coming yes. off, say, a final or a win in Australia, and then she gets to the final of Doha, losing to Petra Kvitova, follows up the next week by winning in Dubai, beating <laughs> Krejcikova, a talk about a harbinger of, of things to mm-hmm. come. She was starting to activate at that point. <laughs> At the risk of overusing that word. <laughs> the, but the season is really starting to coalesce for a bunch of players. For Krejcikova, Mugurutha, Jabour, when the early clay season starts, Bedosa, like a lot of people were sort of writing the beginning of their stories at the beginning of the year. And it was like all upswing from there. Mm-hmm. Mugurutha, as you said, losing easily to Kvitova in Doha. 
and then coming back to win the bigger title in Dubai. Did you know that Doha and Dubai switch back and forth yes. between what's the mm-hmm. 1,000 and what's yes. the 500? I didn't know that. I may have known that, but I forgot it. So I, I relearned it today. Of interest to us at this time of the year were, well, me specific. Well, you had Anli doing well mm-hmm. at the start of the year. And then Clara Towson, she wins her first career WTA title. And then toward the middle of the month in Mexico, Leila Annie Fernandez wins the Monterey Open. I don't think anybody would have seen that happen and then go on to predict, well, yeah, she's going to play for the U.S. Open trophy <laughs> at right. the end of the year. And she beat Golubich, who herself put together a great year. It seems like the people who kind of managed to handle all of these different stressors and pressures during pandemic travel, like they... I don't want to say consistent because that is uh, maybe a stretch on the WTA these days, but they kind of put together uh, impressive runs throughout the season. Well, maybe not necessarily throughout the entirety of the season, but we we definitely saw players play well for certain pockets. There were extended periods of time where various players went on good runs, good extended runs that maybe didn't carry it out throughout the entirety of the season. But we saw it with Muguruza in the spring. We saw it with Contivate in the fall. Jabor really starts to announce herself at Charleston 1. She reaches the semis. In Charleston 2, she stayed there for two weeks because it was so much fun. Runner-up. Then wins her first career title in Birmingham. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but she's someone who's really steadily built her season. But the real stories, like the dominant players of the the first half of the season were Barty and Sabalenka. They're both kind of making that case that they were the number one and the number two player of the year. Barty winning Miami again. She had won Yara Valley in Australia. The big clay tournament in Stuttgart. Where she also won doubles. She won singles and doubles in Stuttgart, did Ash Barty. And then in Madrid, which is kind of a different experience on clay, she loses to Sabalenka in the final. In Madrid, Sabalenka actually got their head-to-head to four all, which I feel is fitting because they they really both performed like the best two players of the year, aside from Sabalenka not winning a major. Mm-hmm. You don't seem to agree. Um, yeah, their their rankings are perfectly fine and reflective of <laughs> a seriously good year. Right, I just don't think anybody necessarily ran away with the top player of the year. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. We haven't talked about Jennifer Brady at all either. Jennifer Brady made the final at the Australian Open. And that seems like decades ago at this point. But it came off the back of making the semifinals at the US Open the year prior. Yeah. And going back for a second, I, I wrote on the agenda that last year's US Open and this year's Australian, we got... Big Babe Tennis in the semis. It seemed like uh, almost a, a return to those glory days, the early 2000s of women's tennis that, like, is this style back? Or are the courts just playing fast? What is going on? But, you know, we get a Serena Naomi semi. We got Brady Osaka in the US Open. Vika Naomi at the US Open final. It, it really felt like a departure from the past few years of women's tennis where there was at least two or three great defensive baseline players. Well, it also wasn't helped by the fact that Simona Halep had a year filled with injury. Mm-hmm. She would be mm-hmm. the player 
to put the wrench in those plans. Right. For but, all these big bashers. You know, Simona, Kenan. Bianca. Bia- right. Bianca is aggressive, but still not. I wouldn't say she's not like a basher. What's your point? What are you saying? The point is, uh, it was not a harbinger of things to come because things got real weird after that. Krejcikova winning the French Open, maybe a bit of a normalization at Wimbledon. But again, we did not get super hard hitters at the U.S. Open as well. Okay. Krejcikova won the French Open. This much we know now. She also won doubles at the French Open. She won both. But by that time, she had already won in Strasbourg the week prior to the French Open starting. And she had made the final in Dubai. So by the time we get to the French Open, she hadn't come out of nowhere. And her game had clearly been progressing as a singles player toward the back end of 2020 as well. Yeah, she was no longer seen as the double specialist. I mean, she is one of the great doubles players of her generation. She's no slouch, certainly, but she was never really taken seriously as a singles player until kind of late 2020. I feel like everybody expected Iga Sviantek to win the French Open this year after how she demolished the field in 2020 and how she won on hard court to start the year in Australia, how she won in Rome leading up to the French Open. She was in good form. Yeah, I mean, she double bageled Karolina Pliskova in the Rome final. A few other people in the conversation. Paula Badosa building her clay season extremely well, getting to the semis in Charleston and Madrid, winning Belgrade, and then she reached her first slam quarterfinal at Roland Garros. Coco Gauff had a great clay season. Uh, Jabour had a great clay season leading up to the French. But really, who was going to rival Sviantec as the favorite? Aside from Ash, obviously. Right. right. The, the most recent two Roland Garros winners. We have done a disservice to the first few days of this French Open by not mentioning yet how all hell broke loose when Naomi Osaka announced that she would not be doing press at this tournament. Yeah, we actually did two episodes on it. Do you remember that? It was the first time that we had ever (laughs) recorded four episodes during a Grand Slam. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think we should rehash all of it here, but the Cliff's Notes is that Naomi announced prior to the tournament that she wasn't going to be doing press conferences during the French Open for mental health reasons. It was a, a pretty unilateral decision. You know, it wasn't some great PR strategy. She hadn't consulted with the WTA. It was just an announcement on her social media that, hey, I'm taking myself out of press for this tournament. It's a lot. And man, the blowback was immediate and immense. Do you remember how swiftly all four Grand Slams and the ITF gathered together to gather her? Oh, yeah. It was quite the uh, the statement. With, and even listed what the potential fines and discipline would be if she carried out her little plan. It was clearly a warning shot sent to the other players that listen. Yes. We're going to be very heavy-handed with Naomi Osaka here. And if we can do that to her, think about what we can do to you. Don't even try it. And this felt disproportionate in the moment. And it's even more disproportionate looking back when you consider just how poorly the ITF and the slams have acted 
independently and together when it came to other issues facing the mm-hmm. tours. Do you have year. a certain one in mind? Uh, Peng Shui is one where the ITF gave uh, a milk toast mm-hmm. statement. I haven't really heard much from them on the multiple allegations of abuse against multiple male players. Fine. Those are ATP players, but they do play Grand Slams. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember how swiftly the uh, French Federation responded to Serena's catsuit yes. post-maternity leave? Mm-hmm. I mean, the disproportionality here. But with Naomi, it was like, listen, little girl. Do you, like Mary Cosby? <laughs> oh my God. Little girl. <laughs> this tournament, though, had a lot of potential for... A lot of folks to have a big, big, big moment, a big win. Mm-hmm. Coco Goff into the quarterfinals. She lost in two sets to Krejcikova. Sakari was the one. Do you remember who she beat? Um, Yeah, this match was wild. Which one was it? It was a 6-4, 6-4 win over Iga Sviantek. This was oh a my God. big surprise. No, I'm thinking of her semi where... It took, I think, Krejcikova, she had like four or five match points before finally winning it. You're correct. 9-7 yeah. in the third against Sakari. Oh, Lord. Yeah, I remember that. But this was a massive opportunity for Sakari. And it ended up being merely one of her eight semifinals on the year. Incredibly consistent year that could have been a truly great one. Yeah. We, we need her to get over that hump, right? Lots of semis are great. Her ranking has improved, like she has the experience now. Let's get to finals and win. Badosa came close to making her first slam semifinal, losing 8-6 to Zidanecek. Mm-hmm. And out of nowhere, Ms. Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova just went right through to the final. What Nine- a story. What a story. What a personality. 9-7 in the third over Rybakin in the quarterfinals. Straight sets over Zidanecek in the semis, and then losing 4-6 in the third to Krejcikova in the final. I'm not sure there were many people rooting for Krejcikova in that match. Um, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> there are definitely some Krejcikova partisans on tennis Twitter. I, I don't know if it's like a contrarian outlook, but she has fans. Pavlyuchenkova just... She's been out here for so long. She's a veteran. She's been to the second week in slams many times. And I think people just really, people meaning me, really, really wanted this for her. And instead, while you got a winner that made sense when you look back at it, you got a fairly unpopular winner at the time. Is that unfair to say? At the time, but somebody who truly bolstered that win in the weeks and months to come. Yes. Krejcikova is the sixth winner in a row at Roland Garros, who is a first-time slam champion. Did I did that make sense the way I said it? The last six women who've won the French Open, it's been their first Grand Slam. Yes. So she went from a great doubles player for most of 2020 to someone who has a true shot at the singles number one ranking next year. I mean, Sabalenka has been out here doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't think Sabalenka gets enough credit for her what she's done on both. Yeah, absolutely. And she actually made her debut as doubles number one this year. Mm-hmm. You want to just add in a little remember when moment at this point? Because we're going to do a bunch of remember whens at the end of the episode. 
And a very big one happened at the French Open. Yes. We didn't actually uh, tell the end of the Naomi story. We kind of just moved on. She mm-hmm. pulled out of the tournament. Yes. She withdrew. But this, her statement and the tennis world's response to it set off a firestorm on the level that rarely happens outside of the tennis world, right? It was a cultural touchstone. At that, that rarely time. happens outside of Serena Williams. <laughs> Seriously. And so, yeah. one, it, it made clear that Naomi had been elevated into a completely different cultural stratosphere. And <laughs> one of the fallouts from that was all these tennis locals came out of the woodwork. Right. You just get a lot of people, celebrities who do not watch tennis. And it's fine. Like, it's you're allowed to comment well, this on one, This one watches but, tennis because we're told she goes to Wimbledon every year. Every, yeah. Every, yeah. Uh, Cheaty, cheaty. Yes, Jamila Jamil doing her best Tahani impression in real life. It turns out that they're pretty similar. Said, boycott you... the French Open. <laughs> and then when confronted, like, hello, what are you talking about? She was like, listen, I know my tennis. I go to Wimbledon every year. She has this uncanny ability to make herself even more unrelatable and posh when she's trying to do the opposite. (laughs) I love it. Like, I'm not even hating on her. It was just so entertaining to me. Mm -hmm. And I I am grateful for her for that. Yeah, so Naomi said that she was going to be taking some time off from tennis, and we did not see her at Wimbledon. Uh, No, we saw her Netflix documentary over the summer, but nary did we see a Naomi Osaka for the rest of the year. She did play a few more tournaments. Of course, she played the Tokyo Olympics. She lit the torch. She lost to the eventual runner-up, Vondrosova. Played Cincinnati. Won a match. And then lost to Leila Fernandez in the third round at the U.S. Open. And that was curtains for her on 2021. I mean, Naomi was already playing a very sparing calendar over the last two years. Which is part of the reason that she wasn't number one. Right When people were complaining about who the actual number one was, Naomi played almost no tournaments in 2020. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we know what happened, but it's just still so jarring that a year that started with such promise, backing up the promise of her fall hardcourt season last year, ended in such calamity. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, just ended in, I guess, confusion? Like, her fans don't really know what's next. I mean, I expect she'll be back, but she, when she said, I need a break from tennis, she was serious, clearly. Mm-hmm. It also gave rise to this new level of dialogue in tennis regarding mental health. Mm-hmm. So in a way, a lot of folks benefited from what Naomi went through this year while she just had to suffer. Right. And we saw Simone Biles go through a similar thing at the Olympics. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. French Open is done. Krejcikova wins both the singles and doubles titles there. Now we're in the grass season. Anne Chabour wins her first title. And we saw some some real throwbacks. Kerber, Kanta, Ostapenko, all winning lead-up grass titles. This was a big one for Angelique Kerber because her career looked to be in trouble before she completely resuscitated it with this title and continued good play throughout the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Kanta was once a mainstay in that British grass season. 
She's won many titles in her career there, or made finals there. But she kind of came out of nowhere as well. Kerber was the one who really backed it up. And getting into the latter stages of Wimbledon, people were thinking, well, wow, she's she's really going to win this again, isn't she? And she was close. She lost to Barty in the semifinals. Ayla Tomlanovic made the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. And she was the one who beat Emma Raducanu. Somehow, this kind of gets lost in the recounting of the year. Mm. That Emma Raducanu didn't, didn't come out of complete left field at the U.S. Open. She had what was deemed a fairy tale run to the fourth round at Wimbledon, where she had to retire mid-match in the second set because her body betrayed her. Yeah, and this was the story. For a long time, there was a whole news cycle or two about Emma Raducanu, about mental strength, and people, remember, people criticizing her for, you know, essentially accusing her of giving up. And, I mean, man, did she turn that argument on its ass at the U.S. Open? Ashberti's run to the title, she started with a three-set win over Carlos Suarez Navarro, who returned to tour after beating cancer to have one final swan song before she retired. She beat Blinkova in the second second round, Sinyakova in the third, French Open champ Krejcikova in the fourth, Tomljanovic in the quarterfinals, Angelique Kerber in the semis, and then Karolina Pliskova in a three-set final. Yeah, so this was also Karolina Pliskova's real resurgence mm-hmm. at the top of the game. She, in the spring, okay, she lost to Jesse Pagula three tournaments in a row, drew her three tournaments in a row, lost them, lost to her a fourth time. She lost to Gasanova at the beginning of the season. And you know, we were kind of haters about the coaching partnership. And I will say we probably seasoned, sprinkled that in a few too many times, trying to uh, maybe blame part of it on you know who. <laughs> well, the point was, isn't it only fair that if somebody's trying to take as much credit as they can for somebody's success when they themselves are not actually on court, then that should be flipped on them when the losses come. Yeah, and I mean, if you are going to write a book after this partnership, we should have at least held your feet to the fire during the partnership. <laughs> Correct? Uh that final at Wimbledon, Ash Barty beating Pliskova in three sets, a lot was on the line for both players. Indeed, I think Ash had some haters to silence. She certainly wanted to shrug off that one slam wonder thing, solidify the number one ranking. You know, she honestly, Ash may not have been thinking about any of these things. The people who follow tennis think about these things. I think she just wants to do a good job and win tennis matches. And then go home and play with her dogs. Right. Get engaged to Gary. Play some golf. Watch some cricket. (laughs) At that semifinal stage, Barty against Kerber. Do you remember how crazy it was thinking that it wasn't unrealistic that Angelique Kerber could win this tournament? Pretty much out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Like, how did this happen? She wins a grass lead-up tournament, and then now, all of a sudden, she is the one in these semifinals with the most experience, mm-hmm. with the game that's tried and true and tested on grass. And Ash Barty is able to navigate that match, get to the final. Pliskova turns back Sabalenka three sets in the semifinals. Another close miss for Sabalenka. 
after losing to Serena at the Australian Open. Like she was she was there all mm-hmm. year. Yeah. This was her first slam semi and then she reached her second slam semi at the US Open this year. It's I mean there was a great sign for her mm-hmm. because for a while she was batting up the girls on the smaller levels, right? Oh yeah. And could not advance past the third or fourth round at a Grand Slam. This although she didn't achieve the ultimate Grand Slam success this season and she had many instances where as we say in Jamaica, our head tech are. <laughs> you know, like, in crucial <laughs> moments in a match, she she reverted to the Sabalenka method. Of the, the, I'm drawing on the Kaminsky method here. Oh, I see. yeah. Reverted to the Sabalenka method of just what it looks like to the outsider brainlessly bashing the ball miles out of the court. Yeah. Uh, she could... I mean, she has certainly improved in this area, but she could still use a bit more of a plan B, maybe a plan C sometimes. But remember, Sabalenka is even younger than Bedosa. She's only 23. Bedosa is 24. Like, these women are still at the beginning of their careers, if their bodies allow them to play this long. That's normal these days. Angelique Kerber, going back to her for a second, she has the third most grass wins of any active player behind Serena and Venus. Even before she was winning majors, she was a whiz on this surface. It was realistic to see her winning this title again. We should talk briefly about the traumatic Serena Williams retirement Mm. in the first round. It It was a traumatic year to be a fan of the Williams sisters, period. Yeah. Because do you remember what happened with Venus at the Australian Open? That was mm-hmm. horrific. I don't really remember. The injury against Sarah Irani in the second round. Ugh. God. And Venus refused to withdraw mm-hmm. or retire from that match. I, it's coming flooding back now. And then you get to Wimbledon and Serena opens that match looking in pristine form. She looked great. I heard her say recently that she was winning when she (laughs) fell, which is not uh, technically true, but she certainly felt that she was winning. It was so early in that match. She slipped on the grass. Uh, Manorino had just, he had just slipped against Federer in the previous match, right, Mm -hmm. on center court. And so there are these, these two awful injuries on center court in that slippery grass in the backcourt. It pissed me off. It was just horrible to see. And then, of course, people are saying, was this her last one? You know, she gave a big wave when she went off court. Is she retiring? And, I mean, it's it's useless to sort of speculate on what Serena or Venus will do, right? We know that now. Well, we know that they're both planning to play next year. Right. But even at the time, it was like, these, these women do not do what you expect them to do, mm-hmm. ever. The Olympics happened. Are they worth any airtime? On this show. Oh my god. It's bad enough that we had to cover it once. Honestly, I so I was writing this, or helping write this agenda, and I was like, well, Svitolina won the gold at the Olympics? I'm like, oh. Oh wait, no, no she didn't. Benchich won the gold. The gold in what? Singles? <laughs> she won the bronze, right? It's a similar color. I am she still, won like, shook by no. this recollection of yours. I honestly, like, I had no idea. You have here written... <laughs> <laughs> Who can remember this even happened this year? The new May I Speak to Your Manager Twins won. And who are these yes. two? 
You've just mentioned one in, besties, in the benches. Besties, Benchich, and Zverev won the mm. gold medals. I uh, Back in the day, before we knew any of this other stuff about that guy, I labeled him and Wozniacki the Can I Speak to Your Manager twins, which I thought was hilarious and very fitting. After the Olympics, <laughs> what did we do? Just two minutes just there? Yeah, I mean... So many players didn't even bother going. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other big story, oh, well, this is WTA, never mind. I was going to say that Novak Djokovic's Golden Slam yeah. was dashed. You can save but, that for yeah. the next episode. But the, the, the thing that's notable for me about this Olympics, and it's because it happened during the era of COVID, for years we've been talking on this show about how it seems tennis players are targeting this particular tournament as maybe a retirement marker. Right. Like they're going to try and, and stick around and make this their final tournament. There was only one person who retired after this event, and that was Kiki Bertens. Yeah, yeah. And we come to find out later on that she was pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. And maybe the Olympics are just a marker for us, for fans and commentators. I. It seems that... I mean, Roger Federer is going through all this surgery and rehab because he wants to play again. Mm-hmm. Uh, he missed the Olympics, of course. But it seems like maybe that wasn't the goalpost for a lot of these veteran players that we thought it was going to be. And it was also just an unusual and tough Olympics to play and get to. And no, I think the story is that COVID changed the way tennis mm. players viewed their careers what they're willing to put up with, what they're willing to go through after having gone through Australia this year, all the uncertainty to even get back on tour this year, and then to have to, in the middle of their season, not just be upended by this tournament thrown smack dab in the middle of Wimbledon, the US Open, but then have to play it under COVID considerations as well. Mm -hmm. It was just too much. I think a lot of folks gave up that ghost. Yeah, yeah. Now, after the Olympics, we get back to North America. We have this kind of modified North American hardcourt swing, but some of the usual suspects were still there. D.C., Cincinnati, Canada, which switches between Montreal and Toronto. We had a shock winner in Canada in Camila Georgie. And then a kind of expected winner in Cincinnati in Ash Barty. Danielle Collins won her first title in Palermo and then San Jose on hardcourt. It was a super quick hardcourt summer, but there were some interesting results. Ahead of the U.S. Open, if you were looking to this tournament for some semblance of normalcy returning to tennis, it went in the complete opposite direction. Mm. And it also brought us some of the best tennis of the year. It was an exciting tournament. If you had told folks before that U.S. Open that Emma Raducanu is going to beat Leila Fernandez in the final of the U.S. Open, you'd have, <laughs> you'd have probably thought that this was going to be the biggest shit show on earth. <laughs> right. But it was actually a great tournament. Leila had an incredible run. Emma had, I don't think, as tough a road to that title as Leila did to the final, but it was still impressive in its own right, being the only person in the history of tennis to go through <laughs> qualifying and go on to win a Grand Slam title. And she did it by winning 20 consecutive sets. She did not lose a set 
in any of the qualifying matches or any of the seven main draw matches. Yes. Say what is... you will about the strength of her road to that title, but the fact is that had never been done before. And it's not something that you could reasonably expect from anyone, but especially someone with this lack of experience. But in a way, it makes sense that it's somebody with that lack of experience, not knowing any better, who yeah. would who'd be able to pull off something like this. Layla, for her part, you know, I mean, she beat Kanepi in the second round, Naomi, Angeli Kerber, Svitolina, Sabalenka. This run is unbelievable. All the while punching her fist to the New York sky. It became one of the indelible images from that U.S. Open. And her speech in that final paying homage to the victims of 9-11 on the anniversary, the way yeah. she was able to pull that off, it was a star-making turn for Leila Fernandez at this tournament. I think a lot of folks, myself included, very high up on that list, began to see her in a completely different light than we had imagined. Yes, it was probably likely that Leila Fernandez would become a very good tennis player, maybe even a Grand Slam champion, but... I don't think anybody expected it to crystallize in this way for her this quickly. And so clearly for us to be able to see what a Leila Fernandez career could look like, mm -hmm. the ceiling just expanded exponentially for her at this tournament. Am I being too... <laughs> <laughs> that was our Canadian content segment. <laughs> um, let me tell you, the girls were scared that Belinda Bencic was going to win this thing. Are and the girls me? The girls were the tennis Twitter people, most <laughs> of whom don't like her. Uh, the commentators were like, oh my God, Belinda, she's playing better than Margaret Court. She's going to win this. This tennis is immaculata. She was... And then <laughs> guess what? Emma said, 6364, thank you very much. I mean, -ching. well, she was not coached by Immaculata Concepcion. <laughs> when I found out that that was Conchita's real name. I, you're still. Shook. I mean, I was shooked. Shooked. You are still <laughs> shaken to your core. Mm -hmm. But that's just. Your I. Own I mean, I grew up Catholic, but like, wow, that's that, that's, that is a next level. That's just your own ignorance, James. <laughs> Ash Barty loses to Shelby Rogers in round three. Pieces out for the rest of the season. Thought it was a cute bookend that. Barty actually beat Rogers in the first major of the season and then lost to her in the final major of the they season. They also played a lot this year. Yes. There were a lot of matchups that happened quite often this year. And I think one of the reasons for that was because of COVID, these players were in the same area for long stretches of time. So if you played both Charleston events, there was a higher probability that this could happen. All those tournaments in Australia, you know, that... A lot of folks would lose in Australia and then peace out and then start their clay swing early. That's not what the calendar looked like this year. Right. Quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, Sabalenka. You mentioned she made the semis. She takes out Krejcikova. So Krejcikova is not, she's not following up with massive wins, but she's not also following up with duds. Well, she, she beat Muguruza in the previous round, but she got hexed. Remember? <laughs> Very... Very unprofessional. Uh, she Ooh. she got an earful from Miss Garbine mm -hmm. before winning that match. She has a lot of eyes on her next year, not because of the great season that she's had, 
Barbara Krejcikova, but because of the manner in which she's won and played some of these matches this year. With added visibility comes greater scrutiny. And so some of the Bush League stuff that you <laughs> may you have... Did you just paraphrase uh, Spider-Man? Is, I've, never, great, I've with, never seen Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. I've never seen Spider-Man. You know this. <laughs> it's a pretty famous okay. phrase. Okay. But yeah, people were chattering after the French Open final. But it uh, yeah, so got louder. All eyes will be on her for other reasons next year. That's mm-hmm. all we're going to say about that. I know a lot of folks want to draw this out of us. This year, it's been mentioned ad nauseum. Yes, the the G-manship word. The G-manship. Yeah, I didn't want to say I censored it. <laughs> Let's just say it's Tsitsipasian. Wow. Wow. You know that is a trigger. A Stephen, That's a trigger for It's Stephantonian. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Raducanu was the one who turned back Belinda Bancic. Mm-hmm. And then, at this point... When you get to the semifinals, the betters, the odds makers, it was all about Maria Sakkari and Arena Sabalenka. That's what made sense at that of time. Course. I mean, Sabalenka is the number two seed. She is the favorite to win her first major here. And Layla said no. That first set, Layla refused to go away. After the first few games, the commentators, I'm not going to lie, even myself, watching that match were like... How, what is the path forward here? Right. How does this happen? It's like she could legit get blown off the court here. Can we see some way for this to happen for her? And Layla found that way. She found the magic, as Gladys Knight did. (laughs) (laughs) And so both underdogs made the final. And Emma Raducanu, fairly matter-of-factly, 6-4-6-3 to win that title. No, that sets her up for a whole lot of money, a whole lot of scrutiny, and possibly a whole lot of hurt going forward. Yeah, the expectations are obviously sky high. And at the end of this Grand Slam season, it's hard to know what to predict next year. So we won't. I think we can speed through the fall season, kind of like the end of high school history every year. You know, we got through World War II, but the Cold War, we flew through it. I did not have that same Mm, high school experience as you did. We never got to the end of the textbook. Never? No. We spent too much time on the freaking gold standard. That was so boring. Anyway. Also, we just covered this. Yes. You know, Bedosa wins Indian Wells. Contivate goes on this almighty run. Holy Spirit, activate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you referenced this earlier, but you came up with the Holy Spirit, activate... In response to my little note here that said, a truly ungodly run she went on to qualify for the WTA finals. Oh, and you called it ungodly. Wow. We're, you know, we're a team. (laughs) That's why. That's why we're a team. The WTA finals, a huge success in Mexico. Muguruza winning. Contivate the runner-up. Massive success. So much so that we want to go next year. I honestly hope it's still there. I really want to go. And do you remember when Ash Barty's coach, Craig Tizer, Tizer? Tizer. Craig Tizer. Why are there two Zs if it's Tizer? I don't don't know why it's spelt the way it's spelt. Do you remember how he went off on how poor a decision it was to host this event in Mexico? (laughs) So they're using crappy balls. 
the you know it's going to be too heavy they should never play in these conditions at the end of the season and look what happened the conditions were actually pretty conducive to some good tennis it was the tennis equivalent of him giving a press conference outside of the four seasons tire shop or whatever (laughs) that Rudy Giuliani did (laughs) statistics who had the most titles this year in singles yeah this isn't a quiz so we no it's not I'm just giving you a prop. Ash Barty, five titles. The most overall titles is Krejcikova with nine. Mm-hmm. Winning a slam and also winning the Olympics and the WTA finals in doubles. Yeah. And also winning a slam in doubles too. <laughs> right. 17 players won their first singles titles. Would you care to name a few? You're putting me under the yeah. pump now? Oh, well, I'll name a few. Towson, yes, and Lee, yes. Danielle Collins, Anne Shabur, some big, exciting players, right? Won their first titles this year. Danielle Collins, notable in that she's been so present in our mind's eye for a long time that it was kind of surprising <laughs> that she hadn't won. That was mm. the one where she looked at the calendar last year and said, you know, I'm going to play in the south of Italy. I want to go there for a nice little vacation too. And she, she mixed business with pleasure. <laughs> And oh, what a moment it was for her. Right. I mentioned earlier that Sabalenka reached her career high in both singles and doubles. In singles, she's number two. In doubles, she reached number one. She won another slam with Elisa Mertens. Let's get to this player of the year business. Okay. Because I know you think it's Ash. I th- sure. So I think the player of the year, Ash Barty is the clear best player. But for that you know, second and third slot, there are a lot of contenders. Hmm. I don't think she's the clear player of the year. Okay. And I'll tell you why. It's been a mission of this podcast, even though we fail to talk about doubles as much as we should. We think, unlike, who is it, Riley Opelko? Who is it that thinks doubles is shit? mixed doubles. Mixed doubles, He does like mixed doubles. (laughs) (laughs) We think that doubles is an important part of tennis. Mm-hmm. And so given that she had such a great year in singles and to do what she did in doubles as well, I don't think it's crazy to make the case that Barbara Krejcikova was the best women's tennis player this year. Okay. So taken together. The best all-around player? Probably. But the singles player of the year is Ash Barty. Okay. But that's not how it's posited, right? Well, I mean, we kind of make the rules that we didn't specify, or you didn't specify what player you know, of the year well, meant. We're mimicking what happens with the WTA awards, with okay. all these other year-end awards. That's typically what people consider. And when you're talking about goats, you know, mm. doubles is sometimes something that will put a candidate over the edge. Right, so uh, Martina's double success, Serena's mm. double success, that sometimes tips them over. Do they get the credit for their doubles, though, that 14 and no? I don't know. I really don't think so. I feel like it's a an underreported part of their career because it's truly remarkable. It is, yeah. So the other candidates to me, Krejcikova, obviously, but there's also Muguruza, Sabalenka, Kontavate, and I'm mentioning people who didn't win singles majors. You are. <laughs> right. Raducanu is not a contender, just no. because she won one tournament and it happened to be a pretty big one. Osaka is not a contender just because she barely played the season. From listener Parker Elliott, he asked this question and gave us the answer as well. It was a little bit of trivia for us to 
<laughs> intertwine in this episode. Which 2021 major singles finalist finished the year ranked lowest? Well, we know the answer. Uh, right. And I, I mean, I did look it up because I just wanted to be totally sure. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't trust you, Parker. You know, I just, we got a fact check. He has your name in his name. Yeah. Elliot, your fake name. It's not actually my name. No. I, I do like when people refer to me as that, even though my name is my Twitter. You get called Elliot yeah. all the time. <laughs> Little do they know that you only picked that handle because you liked Elliot Yamin from American Idol. I know. And E.T., the character Elliot from E.T. I you love always that told movie me so was much. About it Elliot was both. Yamin. It was both. You were just shook by his rendition of A Song for You. Yeah. And I just like the name. Okay. Anyway, you know how people mess up my name at work? What did they say? I mean, my name is right there. Jamie? Roger. Oh. This is my last name. But, oh, people but call you Roger as Roger. your first name. Yeah, but sometimes people say, like, Jason. I mean, I swear they only glance. And J- Jason Roger? <laughs> anyway, to answer Parker's question, or, or a bit of trivia, Jenny Brady is the lowest ranked Grand Slam finalist of this year at mm-hmm. number 25. This is very sad to me because I, I want to see her succeed but injury really wrecked her year. She finished one spot behind who could have been the answer to this question, Leila Fernandez at number mm-hmm. 25. But you look at their year in rank and it's two different perspectives. Layla on the clear upswing and Jennifer not really as good a year as you could have foreseen. Right. And in fact, you foresaw it because she was one of your breakout picks. Oh, well, we'll get to I that. I thought was a pretty obvious pick. I thought you were going the easy route, and then it actually didn't work out. Oh, well, fuck my drag. <laughs> I just mentioned rankings. Where are we with, let's start with the top 10 at the end of the year? Do you want to go through the whole thing? Go through the top 10, and then what jumps out to you afterward. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in descending, ascending? I don't know. Whatever. Starting with number one. <laughs> Is Barty, Sabalenka, Muguruza, Pliskova, Krejcikova, Sakari, Kontavate, Badosa, Sviantek, and Javor. So, we that's... see a real absence of vets we could normally rely on, right? Halep, Kvitova, some of the mainstays of mm-hmm. the top of the game over the past decade, really. Pliskova exited the top 10 for, what, one week? And said, not today, Satan. <laughs> Jesse Pegula, get out of my way. <laughs> but look, this top 10 is fairly reflective of who the top 10 players of the year were. It finally is, right? The rankings are starting to normalize after the COVID adjustments. No, but even taking that into account on a normal year, I don't think you'd have as a reflective top 10 as we do here. Mm. I think it's a pretty good top 10 for what we witnessed in 2021. Because look at the recent champs who are not in the top 10. Kennan and Osaka are at 12 and 13. Mm-hmm. Naomi would be there had she played her tournaments of course. this year. But Simona Halep at 20. She won Wimbledon in 2019. That was only two years ago. Svitolina, who is always there or thereabouts at number 15. I guess that's a pretty depressed year for her, ranking-wise. Right. Oh, sure. There's another veteran who is always in the top 10, sometimes the top five. Mm -hmm. Angelique Kerber back up to number 16. Big second half of the year for her. Kvitova at 17. Jesse Pakula, great year for her. Finishing at number 18, a career high. Emma Raducanu at 19. 
Simona Halep, who is already back in training, she's at number 20. And then Coco Goff. What do you think? This was a question that folks wondered about a lot this year. With all the attention that Coco Goff has gotten in her career, with the success that she's had in early rounds at slams as a 15-year-old, as a 16-year-old. Now she's about to turn 18 next year, and she's up to number 22, a career high of 19 she's reached. But there have been a few players, not just American players, but also younger players who've kind of eclipsed her a little bit in terms of like the bigger success. Sure. And I hope, because I'm a fan of Coco, I I like that, you know, we've seen a very steady improvement. There's She made her top 30 debut, her top 20 debut this year. She had a very good clay season. She made a major final in doubles at the U.S. Open. I think she's building a career for longevity. I really do. Victoria Azarenka salvaged her year, a year that was wrecked by injury as well by making the final at Indian Wells, playing that almighty three-set final mm-hmm. against Bedosa. She was the U.S. Open runner-up, you know, a little more than a year ago. Mm-hmm. Shelby Rogers up to a career high at number 40. Number 41, Serena Williams. Number 44, career high, Clara Towson. Not yet 19, Bianca Andrescu. At 46, one spot ahead of one of your breakout players, and Lee. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, the women's top 50 is actually crazy. It like, is. If, if one of the top 50 won the Australian Open, nobody would be surprised. Marta Kostiuk threatening to hatch and then snatch at number 50. Mm-hmm. I mean, we flew by Camila Georgi, the Canada champion, Vondrosova, the runner-up at the Olympics, Cerebos Tormo, who made all this noise on clay. I mean... The, like, it's unbelievable the depth that we're seeing right now. Madison Keys is ranked 56th. Sloane mm-hmm. Stevens is ranked 64th. Donna Vekic, 67. Caroline Garcia, 74. Anisimova, 78. Like, there's just no shortage of players <laughs> to cause all manner of trouble in the early rounds of these tournaments next year. It's going to be a, me- a mess. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to next season. I think it's going to be a great WTA season. There's so many players who are poised to to make real strides. I'm rooting for Serena, Coco, Naomi, Jen Brady. I didn't realize Jen was up there for you. It is she is because I like I like her game. And this is not a comprehensive list, so like don't please don't at me. Those are just some players off the top of my head that I'm wishing good things for. That was such an unforced error because it's not even a preview I know. episode. I know. You just not. like gave ammunition. I felt that we needed to end that segment somehow, so that's how I did it. <laughs> Remember when? This is my fave. I'm so excited about this. You asked on our Twitter today for readers, not readers, we don't write, listeners <laughs> to submit their remember when moments. Just some something funny or wacky that funny, happened. weird moments of the year. And you all are so smart and are like in our heads because a lot of the ones you mentioned were ones that we already had written down to talk Mm -hmm. about. We were hoping to get stuff covered from y'all that we missed. Mm -hmm. Because every year we do this episode and there's so much to fit into an hour and a half and we miss stuff. And we will miss stuff on this episode, but this was a safeguard. And y'all gave us some stuff that we probably would not have remembered to put on this episode. Did you have the mouse on here? I did not. 
Like, how could we forget the mouse? Putin Siva's mouse. Child <laughs> is no longer a child. <laughs> child is a mouse! <laughs> I did not know that reference until you made me watch that movie, by the way. That's from The Witches with Angelica Love Houston. Love it. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. <laughs> okay, remember when? Way mm-hmm. back in February, Naomi Osaka turned to Jennifer Brady and said, do you, do you prefer Jenny or Jennifer? And she said, Jenny. She said, I'd like to congrat Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is a, a Naomi-ism. She uh-huh. did not do this on purpose, no. right? She's not a calculating person. <laughs> The mouse thing. Uh, like, well, we were in the midst of a high, the highest of drama, right? With this forced quarantine thing, with the super quarantiners in conditions that they were not happy with. Because, and Putintseva is the one who had the realist gripe of was, all of them. Who was Bedosa's little friend? Who uh, was on those uh, Kostiuk. Kostiuk. Bedosa and Kostiuk set up their own little Fox News studio <laughs> to... <laughs> decry the hardships Mm -hmm. and meanwhile putin seva is dodging vermin left right and center like following her to different rooms like this thing was legit her pet at that point (laughs) remember do you remember when eugenie bouchard reached a final this year i did not remember that at all i remember that we covered it but it it was like I was relearning it. She reached a final in February in Zapopa, losing to Cerebro Stormo. And then toward the end of the year, she was commentating on Canadian TV. She had surgery. She had she was injured. Yeah. Do you remember when Venus Williams sauntered over to the chair umpire? Was She had gotten a time violation because she was tossing the ball too much and catching it. Mm. And she said, I can't control God talk to him and she pointed skyward and then toward jehovah that strut that oh don't God. fuck with me strut. no she stick she stuck her butt out mm-hmm. and she i mean stomped across the court with her fingers still raised. she stomped that clay yard it was i mean uh, venus wasn't necessarily right in that moment <laughs> But it didn't matter. Right. I, it's funny because I think most of the time she's complaining she is right. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't complain to umps very often. Uh, she's had many, many iconic moments with fellow players. With Streetsova, with Vinci. When Vinci cursed at her and said, what the fuck? Do, do you want, want a, a fucking coffee a or coffee something? A coffee or a tea? Mm-hmm. And Venus said, all you could hear, you couldn't even see her, was, excuse me? <laughs> Uh, she had that famous moment when she was, what, seven, eighteen at Wimbledon? When she went up to the chair empire and said, he can see it, she can see it, everybody can see it, but you can't see it. Uh, those big steps. She was actually demonstrating how to pivot in basketball without traveling. She was giving us the footwork for her twirl, <laughs> yeah. breaking it down. Vern Jones says... Benchich, quote, in the talk, getting knocked out in round two of Roland Garros. Hmm. I do certainly remember that and, fondly. Uh, this was in reference to Benchich saying that sometimes Naomi just likes to stay in the talk when asked about her decision to not participate in press 
at the French Open. She was saying in no uncertain terms that Naomi was attention-seeking, mm-hmm. that that's what that was about. And that is something that rubbed us all the wrong way back then, and it's not something we've let go of since. And so, if you are listening to this episode and thinking, why can't they just let it go? We are bitter bitches. Is that an inaccurate description? Grudge holders? I know I can certainly hold a grudge. Oh, girl, for real. MCHL86 dropped this nugget that I absolutely love. Was this the year that Kenan announced her Motorola partnership with a picture of her holding a Motorola phone, but the tweet said sent from iPhone? (laughs) I think it was this year. She had a number of very strange, very awkward product partnerships on her social media this year. And that took the cake. A very popular response was the Tomljanovic ostapenko drama dramaticking at Wimbledon. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was a big row. Cornet bashing the French Federation for changing the date of Roland Garros. All I can hear is that moment, unrelated to this, where she's like, What? What? No, are you... Oh. What? We named an episode after her. I forgot what it was called, but it was her like, well, you didn't hear this from me moment. Less humorously, let's remember Sloane Stevens had some great slam stories this season. At Roland Garros, she beat Carla Suarez, Pliskova, and Mukhova. At the U.S. Open, she was drawn against her fellow black American women, beating Madison in the first round then beating Coco Goff. So she had some big heartbreaks after those big wins, but Sloan showed some great poise, great form. Loved to see that from her this year. This after the tough start to her year when she lost family members due to COVID and went through a long stretch of, of not winning very much and was able to get back on track toward the end of the year. Mm-hmm. We cannot wrap this episode without talking about the Diana Yastremska sex scandal saga. Every, it had wow. everything. The it thing was is, the story that kept on giving. It started as a doping scandal, and then it became a sex scandal. It's, I, this woman is remarkable, <laughs> truly. She contains multitudes. Sometimes it's just two parts, one black, one white. Oh. One ebony, one ivory. Wow. Okay, that's not something that I would get away with saying, personally. (laughs) So I'll let you. Um, Diana, early in the season, tested positive for Mysterolone, which is a banned substance. She was provisionally suspended, but in her boldness, got on the plane to Australia and said, you know what, this shit is under appeal, and if it gets overturned, I am going to play. I'll be there, whether you want me there or not. She appealed several times to various sporting bodies, got denied several times, and finally, the independent tribunal... We got this heavily redacted document. Yeah. That, I don't know how much detail she went into to tell them what went where and how much. I think it was... volume, but... (laughs) Oh, my Lord. It was a remarkable... Fix it. Fix it, Jesus. It was a remarkable document to read. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
or attempt to. We decipher. already have we are already have an E for explicit rating on we the do, podcast, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So the uh, the short story is that she claims, and this was accepted by the independent tribunal, that she received mesterolone through one or more acts of sexual intercourse, or mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know exactly how, but. They bought it, and it was at such a low volume, I guess, that it was determined that she was not guilty of purposely using this drug to enhance her athletic performance. And we want to be very clear, we are not sex-shaming. No, it was just, I mean, you gotta have a little fun every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Diana does too, clearly. I mean, if you were a 20-year-old multi-hundred-thousand-air, at least... (laughs) Mm-hmm. At this point, traversing the globe with and you know you're hot a and... very fit body, <laughs> running in the circles of other very well fit people. Like I'm just saying, if this is how she contracted this banned substance, I'm glad it got overturned. Mm-hmm. If if that's if the story is true, good for her. And I mean, she risked a, a lot of embarrassment by using that as her story. You know, so if ah, good on her. Still haven't forgot about the blackface thing. Who <laughs> <laughs> quickly every year on this episode, it's a chance for us to reflect on the stupid predictions that we make at the start of the year. Every year we pick players that we think could break through in the upcoming season. In the last couple seasons, we've been breaking it down into three categories where each of us will pick a player ranked number 1 to 50, one from 51 to 100, and then one outside the top 100 as a player who could break out. We each picked three players to varying degrees of success. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's start with mine. In the top 50 category, I picked Danielle Collins. Won her first title. And her second title. Mm -hmm. So I think that actually ended up pretty well. In the 51 to 100, I picked Anne Lee, which at the time was a very easy pick because she had just had that success in Australia. And it took her a while to kind of prove me right. Mm -hmm. But But still an, an outstanding pick. She improved her ranking from 97 to 47. Mm-hmm. She had, you know, a bit of mixed results throughout the year, but she ended the season Came on as, strong. yes, the champion in Tenerife and a quarterfinalist in Courmayeur. And then Renata Zarazua was my 100 plus choice, just because I like her. Uh, she's still ranked 134, so this was maybe not mm-hmm. my best pick. Ranked 1 to 50, I picked Jen Brady. And it looked good after making the the final <laughs> yes. of the Australian Open, but in- injury had other ideas for her and me this season. Fifty-one to one hundred, Layla Fernandez. Oh, well, look at you! But this was not a controversial pick at the time. It's just that I don't think folks, myself included, expected all this to happen. Right? Like, yeah, you win a tournament in the first half of the year. Makes sense. There were high expectations, but she overperformed. You played well again in Mexico? Makes sense. But to make the final of the U.S. Open in the manner that Mm -hmm. she did, like that's a big-time breakthrough. 
And then Clara Towson, I picked as somebody ranked 100 plus, and she is now ranked in the 40s, I think. And she is now a two-time titleist, right? Mm-hmm. She won her first and second this year. Yeah, so that was a pretty good pick. Well, well done, us. <laughs> Two out of three each. We had some retirements this season. Just yesterday, Joe Conta called time on her career. Joe Conta was ranked as high as number four. She reached the quarterfinals or better at all four slams. Great on that British grass swing. The the tennis Twitter folks, man, they really they gave it to her yesterday. And they they used us <laughs> to give it to her. Oh as my well. you guys they are just messy. Dug up the gif that we used as inspiration for our logo. That infamous Venus Williams body serve. Yes, yes. That almost decapitated Miss Conto. That's at when Wimbledon. Venus beat her in the semis in 2017. 2017. As an effective girl bye moment. <laughs> it was just like, can you leave us it's out like, of this? Walk your dogs and don't get vaccinated. Goodbye. <laughs> like, that was the message. Seriously. We also saw the retirements of Carla Suarez, Kiki Bertens, as we mentioned before, Barbara Streetseva had a baby and officially retired, Shvedova. Uh, a winner of a golden set. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Nicole Gibbs. And Tamea Baczynski, who had been away for a while, officially let us know that she is done with tennis. I'm sure there will be more to come. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest stories of the year is still unfolding in real time, with new developments coming today, courtesy of WTA chairman Steve Simon. Steve Simon announced that the WTA would be suspending all of their tournaments in China because the WTA has thus far been dissatisfied with the level of engagement and the response from the Chinese government and the IOC mm-hmm. on the Peng Shui situation. And so. And the interference. Multiple times interfering from the IOC. Mm hmm. And there, there have been accusations from one side, from the far left, saying, you know, this is kind of a Western hegemonic ploy to delegitimize the Chinese Olympics, to make up lies about the Chinese government, as they always do. On the other side, there are hard right Republicans agreeing with the WTA on this. And it makes me really uncomfortable to agree with those people on anything. But we're not agreeing for the same reasons. No. So where we're at is uh, it feels at an impasse that the WTA has done what they felt was right. But what is the outcome for Pung and for other women who speak up against sexual assault anywhere but in China? The last time we spoke about this issue on this show, on the last episode, the first interference from the IOC had just happened. And that felt incredibly dispiriting it felt like the wind had just been taken out of the momentum that had been Mm. building that in this one moment this one action of complicity by the ioc in lockstep with the chinese government the full weight of those two entities came to bear right and uh effectively put this issue to bed right it it seemed like there was very little for 
the rest of us to do mm-hmm. now that the IOC had acted in that way. And so at that point, it felt like the only thing that could be done was for a the WTA to double down and Steve Simon to double down on what they had promised and then hope for intervention and help from outside governments. Will athletes follow through on their promises to boycott the Olympics? Because the the only reason the IOC is involved here is so that they can carry on with their Olympics as planned, uninterrupted. Mm. That's the only reason they're here. Can I just say it is very wild to see the left, the capital L left, side with the International Olympic Committee and take them at their word on this? It's very strange. Who are these it's people disorienting. It's the Twitter left. Like what, what kind of stuff have you seen? Well, just saying that, well, the IOC president has met with her and they had a, a live, a quote-unquote live interview, so we should just believe it. Like, what? These are like communists and far-left folks saying we should just believe the Olympics? <laughs> it's very, it's this weird dissonance going on. The Olympics has a centuries-long record of being a bad actor, an extremely, the worst actor. Yeah, and a lot of the criticism of the Olympics would come from the left normally. Mm-hmm. So it's weird to see this shift. I don't know. The IOC, for their part, has said that they are committing to holding a personal meeting with Pung in January and that they do share many of the same concerns as the WTA, but they're trying to engage in what they call quiet diplomacy. If they were truly concerned about what's going on, then they'd be transparent about it. We'd be able to see actual video of what's going on instead of acting like an accomplice, really. Right, but the International Olympic Committee, compared to the Chinese government, probably has very little real power in this situation. They have the Olympics. Right, but they also have whatever the government is going to give them with Peng. Like, they're not going to pull the Olympics, (laughs) you know? But this is their leverage. If they were truly concerned, this is probably the biggest leverage that any entity has against the Chinese government currently. But instead, they've just decided to do the the PR work of of China. Right. It's quite cynical because the IOC probably realizes either either there's not a story here or if there is a story, nothing's going to happen. So let's just smooth this over as well as we can. I don't even think they're thinking that deeply about it. Mm. Their bottom line has always been dollars. They've sent Dick Pound out to go out on TV And talk about this issue when he doesn't know anything about what's going on. He doesn't seem to even know what sport Peng Shui plays. No. The IOC repeatedly just regurgitates this nonsense about sport needs to be free from politics. And that alone makes me discredit everything that they say and stand for. Like, it's it's all just complete bullshit. Anyway, the ATP, in response to what happened with... The WTN Steve Simon saying that they're going to suspend tournaments in China, they issued a statement, if you can call it that. Gaudenzi says, quote, The situation involving Peng Shui continues to raise serious concerns within and beyond our sport. The response to those concerns has so far fallen short. We again urge for a line of open direct communication between the player and the WTA in order to establish a clearer picture of her situation. We know that sport can have a positive influence on society and generally believe that having a global presence gives us the best chance of creating opportunity and making an impact. 
We will continue to consult with our members and monitor any developments as the issue evolves. This statement is obviously a nothing sandwich. And the members he refers to have been out here ridiculing this statement all over Twitter. A bunch of active ATP players have been basically mocking it publicly. That second paragraph talking about how sport can have a positive influence on society and having a global presence. He, he's essentially saying we want to stay in China. Yes, that means we're going to have a bigger impact playing wherever we want to. That whole business about Tennis United that was force-fed down our throats at the start of the pandemic. Do you remember Roger Federer's tweet? And then yes, the totally, tweet? totally random, uh, non-planned tweet. Hey, should we think about joining the tours more closely? And then how Gaudenze himself said that he wants to work more closely with the WTA. Well, this is what it looks like. This is the way it looks like. Mm-hmm. For the ATP's part, Simon Herring uh, reported that the ATP will have a hard time breaking ties with China, even though they seem to be less dependent than the WTA, because a Chinese state-affiliated company is a shareholder of the ATP Media Holding. They own 10% of ATP Media, apparently. Mm -hmm. So they may be handcuffed by that, and would they be able to divest or break these contracts, or would they be willing to do so? It's a matter of whether you're willing to, Mm. really. I mean, Steve Simon, I'm sure, is going to be in breach of many contracts with this situation. So like, it's a matter of what your priorities are, frankly. So this is probably an ongoing story that will last longer than our season. We'll be talking about it on Twitter, but, you know, you'll know before us, essentially. We finally were able to watch King Richard. Yes. So we watched it when we went home for to my home for Thanksgiving on HBO Max. And it exceeded my expectations. It did. Frankly. It's uh, better than your average biopic. It... I think it was wise to try to capture only a short period in the family's life mm-hmm. between, you know, maybe 1990 to 1994, I think, around there. Venus's professional we debut was 94. 80s. We got yes. some of the 80s. Yes, yeah, some late 80s. But for a typical biopic, it was a pretty focused period of time. Mm-hmm. Will Smith is excellent. There was a lot of trepidation about his portrayal before. We started to see the the previews and and all that. You know, he maybe doesn't look a lot like Richard Williams, but he sounded a lot like Richard the, Williams. The portrayal was uh, sensitive. It was thoughtful, and it felt like a real person, mm-hmm. which is important. Like you don't actually have to impersonate the person, but you do have to actually feel like you're playing the character. This film really highlights. The not just the longevity of the Williams's careers, but the scope of their story and how big it is. Because we got a two and a half hour film on what the first 10 years of their tennis playing lives, kind mm-hmm. of 10 to 12 years, and that only took them to 1994. Right? They're, they're not even professional tennis players full on yet. Serena is kind of an afterthought in this film. We get a little bit of lip service toward the end where Venus is playing her first professional tournament and Serena, young Serena, is there kind of off on her own and Richard 
identifies that she feels left out. Mm-hmm. And that's where that often told anecdote gets thrown into this movie where Richard always knew that Serena was going to be the best. That Venus right, was going to be first, right. but Serena was going to be the GOAT. And so this is really Venus's movie. And it's about how she was the one who had to sort of kick down those doors mm-hmm. of the two girls, right? And I absolutely love to see it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ingenue Ellis as Oracine Price. Uh, I mean, I expected her to give an excellent performance, but I'm really glad that even though the movie is called King Richard and it's about Richard Williams, it understands that Oracine had an incredibly important role that any discussion of who developed Venus and Serena into great tennis players has to include both. Mm-hmm. If they're ever inducted into the Hall of Fame, it has to be both. It has to be, right? And the movie did well to give Ingenue Ellis that one big scene. It could be her Oscar clip in the, in kitchen. the kitchen. If she wins an Oscar, that will be the clip that did it. That spells out everything, right? It it does the work of exposing the uncomfortable things about Richard Williams' past. It talks about, I fixed Jamaica's serve. <laughs> Oracine Price fixed and improved what is now possibly the greatest weapon in women's tennis history. Not Actually, not possibly. Is. The best stroke in women's tennis. What I was left with after watching this film is... An understanding that we'll probably never know, even though we were told a lot of it here, we'll never fully know the full 100 of the burden Venus bore during that time. Mm -hmm. Of the expectations, of her role as a trailblazer and all that that entailed and meant for her. And we'll also probably never be able to accurately or appropriately give her her flowers. She will, Mm -hmm. like, she is such an underappreciated legend of life. (laughs) She's a cultural icon, not thought of nearly in the same way as Serena Williams, but as folks have said often as like a throwaway, when Serena says it, I believe she means it. Without Venus, there is no me. And that's not just lip service. That's a tribute to somebody who had a legitimately legendary career. One that was hampered by autoimmune disease, by injury, by her own sister. Mm-hmm. Like a career, both these careers have been opined on, have been projected on. These two women, from fans to press to fellow tennis players throughout the entirety of their careers from the start to this day. Everybody has projected what they think their experience was like based on how they think it would have been rather than how it actually was for them and what they've told us it was for them. It's always like you ask Venus and Serena a question, they give you an answer on it. It's like, but don't you think that most people would... No, there's no most people in this situation. There can be no discussion of most people when we're talking about two singular athletes coming from a singular family 
with a singular experience that we've never seen before. All in all, it was not like a very heavy film, which I appreciated. I It captured that joy and that silliness between the five girls. Mm-hmm. And they're kids, right? They At the beginning of the movie, Venus and Serena were little. They were tweens or even younger than 10. And so I liked... You know, they still have that silliness between them. We get They're practically see, like twins. We get to see the origins of their love for karaoke. Right. Um, so I I enjoyed that that that, uh, that levity was always there. And the closeness of their family. That there was no difference between the, you know, Richard's daughters and the half-siblings. No, they were all whole siblings. Two final things for me. Beyonce's song worked perfectly over the credits. The first few times I heard that song, I did not like it. But after sitting through that film and then having it play at that moment, it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. It was better than, again, better than your average like biopic pop mm-hmm. song. It had this driving beat. It it was upbeat. It wasn't like the Diane Warren ballad. The lyrics were pretty good too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also that the film was immaculately cast. Truly. Mm-hmm. Those young girls who played Venus and Serena... Young Serena looks like young Serena. Yes. It's crazy. And then I almost leapt out of my chair when I watched that full extended sequence of young Venus and her backhand. And how these two young women who had never played tennis before were taught how to play tennis oh, in a way Venus's that take back. mimicked <laughs> them so well. Mm. The Venus take back on the backhand and just the first time when... Both of them hit with, was it Rick Macy? Mm. And you see that Rick is hitting to Serena's forehand and you get to see the repetition on Venus's backhand. I was blown away. But whoever did the work with that, give them an Oscar as well. (laughs) All right. So let's hope they win some Oscars. Love the movie. Hope to see it in a theater. Our final act of this season is a, a... taste test do you want to our final wta act of the season is a taste test following up from folks loving our chicken bones taste test (laughs) (laughs) on a previous episode coming back from the states i was finally able to procure mariah's new liqueur it's called black irish Mm -hmm. because mariah is both irish and black Mm -hmm. it's an irish cream Mm -hmm. and she has three flavors We have two. We have the original and we have the salted caramel. So what we're going to do, especially since I bought a bottle of Bailey's from Duty Free that costs $5, only to come home and find out that it expires now. (laughs) Yeah. Why do you think it costs $5? Okay, how long do you think it's been on the shelf? Like five years? No. How long does that shit take to expire? I looked it up. Mm. The expiration that's listed on a bottle of Bailey's, from the moment it's bottled... There's a two-year shelf life to the expiration date. So presumably that bottle was sticking around in duty-free for however long it was closed because of COVID. It would have been sold previously. That's what I'm imagining. Anyway. Okay, so if this episode comes out, it means we did not die of (laughs) Bailey's Irish cream poisoning. We're going to start with a taste of the Bailey's to have a frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. You don't often drink Bailey's, but you don't hate it, right? No, I actually quite like it. You like putting it in coffee and stuff like that? No, never. No, I don't mix it with coffee. Uh, So Mariah's 
All I Want for Christmas is You has jumped to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 this mm-hmm. week. It's topical. So we're starting with a Bailey's taste, just to, you know, get yeah. in the whole Irish cream family. And then we'll compare it to Black Irish. I've learned, well, you can take your Bailey's sip. I've learned that we kind of drink this stuff differently. Like, I'm totally fine with drinking room temperature Irish cream. That's disgusting. Do you take your milk out of the fridge and leave it there for an hour? It's not so it's the room same. temperature. There's no alcohol in milk. Uh, it's still milk. I was on a real white Russian kick for a long mm-hmm. time. I used to drink that all the time. Not anymore. What do you? What, when's the last time you had a Bailey's? Probably a couple of years, right? Yes. I forgot. Like it's actually stronger tasting than I remember. Yeah. Like you can actually taste the uh, whiskey. It's seventeen percent. It's it's oh. good. It gives a certain thing that nothing else can give. You know. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Nice job, Ireland. So you do you do like Bailey's? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so that's the Bailey's. Let's, do, de- let's do, describe this do, bottling do, a little do, bit, because do. if you did not know that this was a Mariah thing, it'd be easy to miss it. Yeah, you actually wouldn't know. Uh, so it's it's giving kind of Irish uh, classic runes uh, script or whatever. It has a little butterfly crest on the top. That's kind of the only giveaway. There are a couple. On the top of the cap, there is a butterfly. Right where you twist it off, there's an MC Christmas insignia. Very specific, it's the Christmas version. Right. There is a butterfly kind of... What's the, what's, how would you describe that? It's like embossed on the bottle. Mm-hmm. It's raised on the glass. There's a butterfly on the label. And then there's Mariah's... <laughs> signature right beside the 17% alcohol 750 milliliters mm-hmm. but if you did if you were the average liquor store patron and you walked by it you probably wouldn't know that this was a mariah carey thing mm-hmm. all right so i'm gonna open the original irish cream mm-hmm. yours you're gonna have yours chilled because you have your oh there's the as <laughs> <laughs> of asmr for those of you who are into it Okay, so we have this fight all the time in this house. I don't... We think this is a Jamaican thing, right? Where if you have ice in your glass, you will... Every single time you pick up the glass, you will spin it around. And it's very annoying. Okay, well, I don't think it's necessarily just a Jamaican (laughs) thing, but I am Jamaican, so that's how I learned it. (laughs) But you would tell me for the longest time that it was bullshit. That it did not, in fact, make your drink colder. It does actually work. And it does. It's just extremely annoying. All right, so we're tasting Black Irish smell. original. What does the smell smell like? I don't know. It smells like Bailey's. I'm not really a foodie. Like, I don't know what you expect. Mm. It smelled more chocolatey than the Bailey's, and it tastes more chocolatey mm-hmm. than I the Bailey's. I would say, so it's smoother. It's more like malty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as... It's deeper. It's not as filmy. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Bailey's leaves a, a coating in your throat. This doesn't do that. Oh, that's quite nice. Yeah, I, it gives mm-hmm. like kind of a hint of... It's giving condensed milk. Nut? It's There's giving, like a nut flavor as well? It's giving Vietnamese iced coffee. Do you taste a little bit of nut? Excuse me? <laughs> I'm being serious here. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that... This is not lasting till Christmas, so you'll have to replenish this for me. Okay, well done. Another smash hit wonder by Mariah Carey. And now, on to the salted caramel. Or as you say, the caramel? No. Not me. <laughs> Rochesterians. A lot of Americans say caramel. Caramel? Caramel. Like there's no second A. Mm. 
Where's your third glass for me to pour into? <laughs> Are you supposed to shake it? I don't know. Oh. No. I'm very into this. Mm -hmm. Like this this has Bailey's beat for me. Love me a salty caramel too. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. Smells absolutely like caramel. It smells salted and it smells like caramel. You know what? This does not this doesn't taste like the fake caramel that you get in candy. This actually smells like real, like dark caramel. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really good. And it's giving a completely different note mm -hmm. than the original. Wait for it. Me and Mariah go back like Bailey's and Pacifiers. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the puns, they just fly out of me. I, I can't help it. I am honestly biased, but I'm honestly blown away. I'm very bowled impressed. over. Very impressed. Blouse and skirt. That's one of those two mechanisms that make no sense. Yeah, I'm just sitting here with a smile on my face. This is quite a wonderful development. It's priced at like $26. I think that's what we bought it for. Mm -hmm. I feel Bailey's, like that might be like a few dollars more than Bailey's in the U.S. Comparable, I think. Fairly oh, comparable. Oh, is it? Okay. It's a, what is it, a 750 milliliter bottle? It is, yes. Okay, that's not bad. We're going to have to track down that third flavor. If these first mm -hmm. two are any indication. But wow, salted caramel for me, that, that is mm -hmm. my biggest endorsement. Now listen, if you have a family member who enjoys Bailey's, listen, it's a holiday staple, right? Do this. This is an easy Christmas gift. I'm not getting any remuneration from Mariah for saying this. I think we'll be doing it as well, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, go out and buy it. It's Black Irish by the one and only, inimitable, Mariah Carey. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope we get some money after this. Holy Spirit, activate. <laughs> it's Mariah season. We will see you next time for ATP Rep, and we will see you next time for WTA Stuff in 2022. Thank you to everybody who's donated to our GoFundMe. We cannot say again how shook we are by it. We will be keeping it open for a while. If you are worried, not to be presumptuous, but if you are worried that you didn't get a chance to donate before we hit our goal, again, disavow yourself of those worries. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. You can find the Body Serve at the Body Serve on Twitter. There's a link tree with all of our various social media accounts, website, GoFundMe, and Redbubble merchandise. Mm -hmm. Till next time.